Welcome to Politics in the North, where a couple of recovering policy wonks get together to discuss politics. So today we have Eddie, Victoria, and Alex with us today. Hello. Hello. And today, given that we are all living through this communal experience of self-quarantine and going through COVID, we figured it might be a great point to start discussing a lot of the different government responses and interventions that we've been seeing throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, where do we want to start with? Well, we could, uh, we, I think we definitely could start off uh, at home here in Canada uh, to see, at least to start off the discussion with how the government is approaching it, as in we had the numbers uh, some of the models uh, provided before the long weekend on Thursday. And it seems to show that even with certain strict measures, we may see a significant number of casualties. However, as the uh, chief medical officer had mentioned, that a lot the, the numbers are not a magic ball and they could vary uh, pending what we do next. Um, but I think from Canada's approach, uh, we've seen a lot more um, a communication and uh, unity with the, between the province and federal government. And you've seen a population that's been more responsive to government as compared to other parts, say New York. But then it's been, a, I think it's been a, a good response generally. Yeah, I, I, the only criticism that I've heard about sort of the Canadian public messaging has been that they didn't release, or at least the federal government and a few of the provinces didn't release any sort of projections until really recently compared to Europe and the United States and some other um, regions as well. So I don't, I'm not really sure why that was the case. I know Doug Ford uh, released like the Ontario projections, I think last week, and then the federal government has followed up with their projections. So I don't know if they're if anyone knows like why they sort of held off on releasing those projections? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. Um, it could be because we've just had relatively fewer cases than mm-hmm. um, certainly in a lot of the U.S., definitely more, uh, fewer than in, than in most European countries at this point. So they may have held off just because of that and released them when it started becoming clearly much more of a problem. I'm not sure what you guys think of that uh and then alberta i believe re- released there is even more recently are there any provinces that we know of that haven't released them bc mm-hmm. yeah but i think it's also there's also an underlying issue of methodology mm-hmm. because all of the provinces have different methodologies in terms of their forecasting and what's considered cases and the federal government being the overarching body their responsibility would be to essentially pull together the data that you're seeing from each of the provinces, even though their methodologies don't necessarily align. Mm. Um, so I think that might have been one of the the little hiccups along the way before they finally re- released all the figures. Right, that makes complete sense. And, and I know there was issues with, and it's also hard too, right? Because every province's testing capabilities has been different as well. Um, I know Quebec is, has been doing a lot more testing than like Ontario, for example. So. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yes. But I think overall, it's been a pleasant surprise to see the, the lack of partisanship across party mm-hmm. lines in terms of everyone kind of coming together. Doug Ford and Christia Freeland getting along very chumlily. Yeah, the, you haven't seen too many pod shots across the aisle. Yeah. 
No, that, that's true. Even when there were times um, where there was clear overreach from the federal government, I felt the response was fairly muted and well-reasoned and people moved on pretty quickly. And the example I'm thinking of there is uh, a few weeks ago when uh, the Trudeau government essentially tried to um, passed legislation which would have allowed them to uh, uh, carry out funding measures without the approval of Parliament through December 2021. So over quite a long period, that was obviously not playing well with anyone else on the Hill, and they stopped it. But after that happened, there no one seemed to be picking up on it too much beyond that. There wasn't any harsh partisanship on it. No. Uh, the funny thing is, it, that was a bit of a head-scratcher in of itself, in terms of like who in their right mind would think, given the circumstances, opposition would willingly give their right for oversight in terms of the funding mechanisms within Canada. It's also just really questionable coming out of the governing party. It's not the kind of crisis management I think they want to be engaged in. And they clearly, I think, would have support from Parliament on most stimulus measures at this point, and have been quite quick at rolling that out. So why they did that is quite unclear, but it's good that they put it aside and did that quite quickly. On that note, yeah, the stimulus measures have been incredible. The pace of change that they keep on announcing it Every single 24 hours, you almost hear a different change or a different amendment to the initial policy and plan. Family and friends who have gone through the crisis benefit application on their, their CRA, my accounts, basically it was just three questions. And then three days later, they got the $2,000 submitted into their bank account. No questions wow. asked. And I'm, wow. in my mind, I'm thinking like, holy, the fact that yeah. the federal government was able to move this quickly, yeah. use the mechanisms that they already have at their disposal in the form of the GST transfer and the CRA yeah. uh, to, to target and meet people where they're at, rather than having this convoluted social program process built just to tackle it. They used existing rails and are chugging away with it. I think this also brings to question as well, like whether there'll be some kind of standard income that has to be provided to people after this is done, right? Basic income. Do we need to have such a program in place? Because I think even after this crisis, uh, most governments will be in deficits for sure. But especially in handling it, do we need to have a basic income uh, program in place uh, to ensure people have some kind of support without governments having to over leverage themselves? Yeah, it's it's an interest. It, it's a really good point, and uh, this seems to have brought that debate in forward in a much more real sense than it has been even in recent years. It's been picking up, but it's been more theoretical and, until now. I think until this point, they've been smart to focus instead on wage subsidies uh, to employers mm-hmm. to try to make sure people stay on the payroll um, and can go back into employment hopefully relatively quickly once this passes. Yeah. Um, depending how long that is. So at this stage, that probably makes more sense than um, a minimum income, again, just because it makes it so much easier to get people back into work. For sure. But for all those people who are self-employed or don't have employees and who are self-employed or who are vendors or precariously employed, then it might, you might have to look at something like that. It would have to be targeted, though, beyond just being a, um, a guaranteed income to everyone or to a very large subset of people, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting because I know, like Ontario, before Doug Ford came in, didn't they have a universal basic income pilot going on? Um, yeah, it was, it was yeah, a very small yeah. pilot. Um, right, I think but they, they canceled it. <laughs> yeah, yes. Right? So I think there, so one point that was um, 
should make is one of the reasons why the Canadian government has done such a great job of like the websites aren't really crashing when people are applying mm -hmm. for these benefits is because the Canadian government has put a lot of effort in having a good digital government system. I mean, yeah. they have a minister of digital government, like the minister of digital government of Canada, which mm. is not something that you have in a lot of different countries. So the infrastructure was kind of there for it to be able to take on um, this amount of pressure when it mm. comes to these types of doling out social benefits in crisis. So I mm. think that's one reason why you're seeing it be so successful compared to the US where the websites are crashing and people have been trying like calling like 100 times a day to try to get benefits. And then the other thing I have been thinking a lot about is I mean, we've really only been in like lockdown for, I think, what, like three weeks, three, yeah. almost a month. And it's really devastating to me that you see so many people going from working, maybe part-time work, um, but straight to food lines. And, yeah. and that's, that kind of shows you like the precarious nature that a lot of the workforce in Canada was already in, that people weren't able to have enough savings to even be able to exist for a month or two months without receiving something from the government or without having to go to food, like uh, food banks. Mm. And I think that's something else that maybe right now is not necessarily the time to talk about it, but I think that's something we should be looking at too, which kind of goes into what you're talking about with universal basic income. Yeah, and even an increase in wages as well. But Victoria, yeah. you also bring up a good point as well. You said infrastructure and the mm. situation in uh, say the US because this morning, which is um, April 10th, uh, there were reports that New York had one of the highest death rates, right? right? 7,000 yeah. people already dead and they're already starting to massive grave, um, grave, grave, uh, grave sites uh, for all those who have been lost. Uh, what's the case in the US with regards to infrastructure and support from government? How does it differ <laughs> on the Canadian standpoint? so bad um <laughs> i yes. it's really bad it part of the the issue in the u.s is i mean you can talk to people in the federal government i know i have a lot of friends that are in the state department and they talk all the time about how a lot of the especially the sort of digital and it infrastructure was built in like the 80s so it's just not equipped to handle all of this pressure and we and we also saw like when obamacare was launched the website crashed you know, so there was that whole debacle. So they really haven't been able to keep up with the demand. And then also every state has their own infrastructure as well. And states that have less funding have, you know, less capacity to deal with all of the, de the demand. And I think in California, they're working with Google to kind of beef up their ability to deal with all of these requests. I think New York is working with, um, I want to say Amazon. So you see like these richer states being able to work with these companies. But what about, you know, really poor states like Arkansas or Kansas? Um, those states are really going to keep struggling. And you don't really see the federal government offering any help whatsoever to two states yeah well it's also a question not just of um richer or poorer states but also of just the political culture in those states and this extends to rich mm -hmm. states as well you look at florida and texas both of which are quite wealthy um right. relative to the rest of the country uh it's emerged recently that both uh especially florida had in the past decade actively designed some of their websites which were designed to help provide resources to people who need to get unemployment benefits or who need to register as being unemployed in the first place, 
have made those intentionally difficult to use uh, so that people would eventually just give up and stop trying and therefore the state government would be able to pr uh, provide lower unemployment figures to the national government. So you have those sort of dynamics coming into play as well. And if it's happening in Florida and Texas, I mean, yeah, you could easily imagine that happening in other states too. Uh, I don't know where or if that's the case, but it's a pretty disturbing issue to have come up that the systems are crashing not only because too many people are using them, but because they were designed not to be used in the first place. So I think that'll be something that really has to be looked at hard, uh, both in this crisis and once we're, once we're through it. Yeah, and I wonder if it also has something to do with the U.S. relying a lot on companies to help them, like the government relying on companies to, for example, I can't remember the name of the program that they did recently, but it's basically trying to give loans to small businesses. And instead of those loans coming directly from the government, they're supposed to go through banks. Yeah. And and people are trying to talk to the banks and trying to get these loans, but the banks are like, we haven't gotten enough information from the government about what exactly the requirements are. And it's just this like insane situation where everyone's confused because there's just not consistency in the messaging. And it reminds me of this uh, project that was started by Kushner called Project Airbridge, which was the federal government like airlifting supplies from abroad, like medical supplies, bringing them to the US, but then instead of just giving them directly to states, which I think they did like a percentage of, a certain percentage they then give to companies who then the states have to bid for those supplies directly from those companies. It's just a weird way to do like the supply and demand and to to deal with such a, with such a, a I don't know, like it just blows my mind. None of it really makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. And and it's just so inconsistent and confusing for everyone. And that just seems to be like the reaction the U.S., the federal government has had to this whole situation. It's just pure confusion. Well, I think a lot of that, too, is particular to this administration. I really wonder whether we would have seen something like that playing out, certainly under Obama, even under Bush. Um, mm -hmm. I, I really question whether the approach would have been the same there. I doubt it. <laughs> Well, you guys are also picking up on a, another key issue, right, which is government efficiency, right? And mm -hmm. in the U.S., there is, well, it would be an understatement to say there is a lack of government efficiency, both from the state and federal level. But say in other jurisdictions, like in New Zealand, where they at least at, on this day have at least reported only one death, but um, Jacinda Ardern, uh, the prime minister, has managed to um, send a very clear message to New Zealanders um, of the importance, how quickly the government was able to ensure that there was border restrictions, ensuring people were in lockdown, but ensuring that there was almost a human approach to it. And then also in Germany, where Merkel was able to galvanize an entire nation to begin self-isolating as well, but then having like more on the contact testing, um, uh, more of a, a more efficient way or effective way of testing and ensuring that those areas that were had higher cases as well were approached with uh, compared to other jurisdictions, Italy, Spain, and where have you, where there was more or less of a uh, government, efficient government as well. What are you guys' thoughts on that? For sure. I think case in point, if you look at a lot of the cases that you see out of Southeast Asia, either in the form of Taiwan or South Korea, where contact tracing was digitized, they were using 
at the geolocations of phones to rigorously find and identify people and then notify others if they were in close proximity with someone and enforcing the quarantine. By virtue of that, they were able to essentially get ahead of the ball, whereas a lot of the other countries that you see, Canada, US, even large parts of Western Europe, the contact tracing is a manual process. You are calling people and you're depending on their ability to recollect, oh, was I at the grocery store from 3 to 5 p.m.? Or was I from 3 to 4 p.m.? And that one hour difference could be the difference between infecting five people and 10 people you don't know yeah um the yeah the the responses have been huge and varied but i think technology has a had a huge role to play in terms of the responses yeah, yeah. and beyond beyond technology alone it seems to have been pretty clear at this point that the places that have dealt with it best including germany and new zealand are the ones where they managed to get a lot of tests out to hospitals and to doctors quite early on um, mm. and those tests were functional uh, mm. and where people have a higher basic trust in government mm. which is in the case which is the case certainly in Germany less so perhaps um, in a country like Italy Spain or the United States yeah I think there is a huge lack of trust in the government in the United States uh, <laughs> and that that might have a part of it I think it's just also I, I kind of worry because I know in the U.S., like today, they were saying in New York alone, they have more cases than any other country. And and I'm, I'm worried that, and we've already, I think with everything we've done, the U.S. has beyond 400,000 cases and at least 16,000 people have died within a, like the last month or so. Yeah. And I can already hear arguments from people, um, especially conservatives, who are saying, you know, is what was this worth it? We're not seeing because they said, you know, instead of a hundred to two hundred thousand people dying by August, maybe it'll be around sixty thousand. Mm. So you you see these people, especially on Fox News, arguing that see the surge they talked about, it's not coming. It's not as bad as everyone talked about, mm. and it's almost like we're getting so normalized to the numbers that yeah. people are like, yeah, you know, sixteen thousand people. That's that's not too bad. It's not a yeah. hundred thousand. The other thing they're missing by saying it's only 16,000, only in air quotes, obviously, but mm -hmm. what they're missing is that it's only 16,000 because people have followed what right. the government has told them to do. Had they not, right. it would have been much higher. So. Right. And, and that's what's so interesting to me is you see, like you were pointing out, like, like New Zealand, um, and if we wanted to go to the Middle East at all, which is a totally different story in terms of government, but yeah. in the UAE and Dubai, like they barely have any cases mm. or any deaths, but they've already taken such extreme measures to mm. pre prevent more outbreak and more deaths. Whereas in the States, it took so long, like so many people had to get sick before anyone, not even just a federal government, but just normal people like walking around American citizens began to take it seriously. And I find that really interesting. Like, I don't, I don't know the situation in Germany and New Zealand, like if they have people who are like, oh, this is so ridiculous, like we're overreacting, but you see it in the States a lot. And it's just a weird phenomenon. So why don't we touch on that one as well? I think the measures themselves and perception of the measures, right? Because you still have a country like Sweden, one of the Nordic countries compared to its like other mm -hmm. uh, related countries like say Denmark, where they took much stronger measures. 
Sweden decided to say like, no, we're not going to do this. We're still going to have population going walking daily, um, but then only uh, segregate more the vulnerable population from the public. Um, but they're saying, I think their assumption is that, well, we just have a herding um, uh, approach, something that the UK had attempted to do prior to going on lockdown. Um, whereas in, say, in Asia, China, um, South Korea, where they decided to take these stronger measures, go hard uh, and go fast, go hard and go fast, um, seem to have paid off down the line. Why is it that we have certain countries, certain jurisdictions that are afraid to take these steps or don't want to take these steps, and others that are more than happy to do so in order to ensure the population? Is it just the culture? Is it just society as as a whole? What do you guys think? Well. I think some of it isn't just um, being afraid of uh, taking those measures. In the U, in the UK, and in Sweden, they did. The governments there did listen to the advice of their um, of their scientists. Mm. It wasn't Boris Johnson who was coming up with the herd immunity <clears throat> herd yeah. immunity idea. Mm. Uh, similarly, it wasn't the Swedish prime minister who was pulling that out of his pocket. They were they were getting that advice. Yeah, and then once that turned out to not be such a good approach, mm. um, they changed their tune. The thing with herd immunity is that down the road, that might make a lot of sense. But first, you need to have a capacity to inoculate people. And of course, we're nowhere near being able to do that at this stage. Yeah. But now that they have started taking more aggressive measures, generally in the UK, it seems to be working well, although you do have more instances there of people not listening to the uh, to the advice of the government or taking different lines on it or um, being confused about what, what advice is being given. But I think going forward, I, I don't think they were afraid necessarily to implement those measures. I think they were just getting different advice. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a question that will be examined for, like people are gonna write their PhD theses on this, yeah. on this question because it's there's so many different factors that lead into it, but mm. I think one important one is every country sort of knows their healthcare capacity and their infrastructure. Mm. And it might be like, if you look at the UK, the, the um, NHS was already quite overwhelmed, underfunded, pretty mm. much going bankrupt. And I think once they got those numbers from the scientists, they knew, okay, we can't, we don't have the capacity to deal with mm. this. Whereas maybe in Germany and Sweden, and, and maybe New Zealand, they sort of know that maybe they have a better capacity to deal with you know, people getting sick. Because mm. um, people are getting sick in Germany, they're not, but they're not dying. They have a very low death rate, yeah. and, but they have a really good healthcare system. Um, they have the infrastructure in place. So I wonder if that's kind of what Sweden is thinking as well, because correct me if I'm wrong, but with herd immunity, immunity if that's what you're trying, that means people still get sick. Right, 100%. like you're essentially, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're yeah. essentially allowing people to get sick to cr increase immunity, but that means you need to have the healthcare capacity to deal with all of these people getting sick at one time. So maybe yeah. Sweden feels like, hey, we have this capacity, so let's try this thing out. Whereas the UK just knew that they didn't. So I think in terms of healthcare systems, knowing your healthcare systems, I think also some of the casualties to this will be some mm -hmm. of the developing countries, right? Um, yeah. where the healthcare system isn't uh, as strong as you would have in more of the advanced countries. Um, and I'm speaking in some countries within Asia, countries in Africa, 
and South America is, and they have implemented lockdowns um, at at the request of, let's say, the World Health Organization. However, um, right now the U.S. and Europe seem to be the epicenter. But once they get through that hurdle, they'll manage to comb through. But I feel as though some developing countries um, will get the brunt of it, especially given that they don't have strong healthcare systems. People live in crowded spaces in a lot of cases. Um, their economies are likely to feel the brunt of it because I think over even 7% comes in from informal, uh, informal sector, comes in from tourism, and uh, you may see poverty uh, increasing exponentially even after this crisis in a lot of these developing countries. And, I, and I, I'm even seeing even other repercussions, especially from, say, in certain African countries, when I'm looking at, say, South Africa, Nigeria, Uganda, Kenya, where you're having, well, at least in parts of, say, Uganda, where you're having military presence and reports of abuse happening, um, and what that's happening on the population, like the extremes of power, but then also cases of domestic violence um, mm. that may uh, increase as a result of um, these lockdowns as well, right? Um, but what do you guys have to say for that? Well, I think it, it's twofold. Yeah. One, from the health perspective, again, like you mentioned, they don't necessarily have the health infrastructure, but another yeah. issue that's compounding it is the fact that um, many of the key nodes for health supplies mm. are being locked down essentially for the domestic country. Yeah. So many of the critical resources that you need for treatment may not be accessible for a lot of these developing markets. Yeah. On the second component, it's been said again, and it'll, it reinforces the fact that being able to stay at home is a luxury for many people. Mm-hmm. And for, like you had said, in quite a few of these contexts, living in crowded urban areas where you don't necessarily have these individualized housing units readily available. Yeah. It, it could compound the issue significantly. Yeah, and there's definitely... I mean, like you said, the, they're kind of like South America, Africa, large parts of the Middle East as well are sort of in a lag compared to Europe and the United States and um, East Asia in terms of cases. Yeah. And we might hit our peak and then start coming down from it, but we'll still be dealing most likely with sort of the economic fallout. And so I, I'm worried about you know the US, nor- these countries that have a lot of resources being distracted by our own problem and totally just ignoring or not able to help, like you were saying, these developing countries that are really going to suffer because of lack of capacity and infrastructure. And I, I wonder how how we're going to be able to direct resources to those places. Yeah, and I'm guessing it's, I, I think this will also be like a huge gap. I think depending on how well China recovers, it may be, I think, the opportunity for, say, a country like China to go in and support a lot of these developing countries. Um, as we've seen with even some some of the major um, big entrepreneurs like Jack Ma helping to deliver some uh, medical equipment to parts of Africa. So I could see China playing a key role there in that regard, while other countries are still trying to come on to amend as well. But again, I think as Dr. Fauci from the U.S. keeps on saying that our timeline is based on the virus's timeline. And until we have a, a vaccine or some form of permanent solution, we are going to 
have to live with a lot of these effects and ramifications down the line. And you already see that, like I know the UAE, for example, has given um, supplies to different countries in South America. I think Colombia was one. And you've seen China doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and the U.S. hasn't been the greatest international player over the last couple of years. So I don't see us sort of doling out supplies and help to different countries. Um, But I wonder if if Canada will even be in in a position to do that down the road. For sure. I think one thing that's really sticking in my mind is whether or not this is going to result in a major retrenchment in terms of openness to globalization in the way that it's been over the past two decades. In the sense that while globalization for the most part has been focused a lot on profit maximization and optimization, this virus is really putting into focus the significance of resiliency. And again, resiliency is going to be a theme that's going to be recurring more and more moving forward, particularly with climate change kind of being at the forefront of it. What do you guys think in terms of how this might impact how countries approach international engagement moving forward? I think the the first thing there is that this has really exposed just how uh, fragile supply lines can be. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have that in this case, climate change could also affect those in the future. But I think countries are starting to realize, um, looking at the shortage of, say, medical equipment or pharmaceuticals, that they may want to move some of those more crucial elements of their supply lines uh, back into their own countries. So there could be some disengagement from globalization on in those sorts of areas, I think. Some of that might not necessarily be a bad thing. The, economic consensus in some way seems to have been shifting in that direction uh, before this crisis came up. But I think I don't think most places will will start retrenching into full-blown autarky or wanting to manufacture everything at home, which simply isn't possible. But I, I think it will have an impact and this will affect uh, globalization going forward. I, I, I'll say, I think I'll agree and disagree with you on that I think to Chris's point, resiliency will be a common theme. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that we will see, um, as you mentioned, like the supply chains are being impacted. I think the challenge for a lot of the advanced economies is that bringing a lot of these supply chains back is very costly for the businesses. So what may happen is that some of these chains that are, say, located in as far as China may be moved to parts of South America where it's a little bit closer and there's a little bit much more, the cost of doing business may still be cheaper as well. Of course, certain aspects will remain in the home countries. I think they'll legislate it in some countries to have, say, certain types of masks, certain types of ventilators created, but I think certain items will have to remain certain parts of the world in order to reduce the costs of doing business. But again, I think it's going to, for most countries, they're definitely going to have to rethink a lot of their own healthcare provisioning and also other areas. Um, but again, the issue of climate change has been at the forefront from the EU, with the EU Commission having its own point plan on this. And a lot of it will, because the EU, European Commission, uh, European Union cannot Uh, discuss or deal in matters related to health matters. However, it can deal in political matters. And so that may see a lot more resiliency and how the global community deals on health-related issues, either having a body that is stronger than the World Health Organization that is well-funded 
not only by solely by the U.S., but by other countries in order to tackle a lot of these issues and helping with the supply chains. Yeah, I think one of the first kind of where I'm looking to see how this this future is going to look is actually the vaccine, right? So after H1N1, there was like this huge controversy because as uh, an Australian company essentially created the vaccine to H1N1, but the Australian government required that company to fulfill all of the Australian requests for the vaccine before they could export any, any more requests. So I think the US was the next on, in line or whatever. So it essentially became this huge global health you know, issue because countries were getting in line for vaccine for the vaccine and there was only so much vaccine that could be produced at one time so you saw countries that had more resources getting the vaccine first and you also saw countries sort of looking inward and thinking about themselves before thinking about anyone else eventually you did see different countries start to donate money and um, resources to uh, developing economies so that they could afford the vaccine, but equitable access to medical supplies and to vaccines has been an issue for a really long time. And I'm, and I'm worried that we're going to see um, what happened, you know, 10 years ago happen again whenever a vaccine is discovered. Like, I don't know if you heard the, the report that came out maybe like two weeks ago or more. It feels like a lifetime ago, but I think it was only two weeks ago that <laughs> President Trump had tried to basically like buy CureVac, which or try to get CureVac, which is a, a German pharmaceutical company, to move their headquarters to the U.S. to essentially secure their vaccine for the U.S. first. And and it, it's it's like a ridiculous notion, but then you start thinking about it, and you're like, well. Is, is Germany going to do the same? Like, if this company comes up with the vaccine, is Germany going to do the same thing Australia did and said, hey, you have to help us out first before you can start exporting this vaccine to anyone else? Yeah. And that's essentially, like, the work that I do at, at my job and what we're doing at Creative Commons is trying to say, like, okay, if, you're, if you find the vaccine or you find um, a low-cost emergency ventilator, mm-hmm. can you just open up your IP so that, people everywhere can start to produce those things and then distribute them, especially for countries and regions that don't have as many resources or accessibility to those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's really hard to do. So I, I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence. Like, I don't know if we're going to become more interconnected and, and be more collaborative with each other when this is all over, or if countries are going to start turning inward again. And, and like, I think you were mentioning like the EU especially is struggling with this, right? Yeah. Like the fact that Italy was struggling to get ventilators mm-hmm. and country and members of the EU weren't sending them ventilators or supplies because they were worried about their own supplies. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I think it's reasonable to expect that governments will want to prioritize resources for, for their citizens first. I think as you were saying, the crucial thing, is really making sure the IP is available outside of the country um, so that when a vaccine is discovered, it can be produced by more than one player and be distributed much more equitably. So at at this point, I don't necessarily fault um, a lot of European healthcare systems for not wanting to share their ventilators when they can see what might happen to them. But certainly I would hope that, that IP would be shared. Yeah, and it'll also be interesting 
beyond just like an individual and personal level and a social level is how governments roll back some of the things that they've been doing that can seem quite draconian um, mm -hmm. and increase of the surveillance state. Um, I think that'll be a really interesting thing to watch because once you start kind of implementing those measures and increasing surveillance by using people's phone data, for example, that tends to stick. I mean, we saw that after 9-11 with everything that happened with the Patriot Act, um, those, all of those measures are still in place, right? So I think that'll be another thing to watch too. On a final note, in a hopefully more positive vein, what do you think <laughs> will be one positive outcome to come from this whole experience? Um, I actually, I uh, was talking to a, a, a colleague of mine yesterday and they were talking about how for a long time, people with disabilities have been, you know, screaming at, into the void about the needs for accessibility and that everything they're sort of asking for to make, you know, work and entertainment and all of these different things more accessible are good for everyone. And for a long time, governments and companies and, you know, just normal people sort of denied that those things were, were we were able to do those. So from like working for home, from home, for example, or having uh, church services put online through Zoom um, or concerts is another one. I think those things that they've sort of been talking about for a really long time that that would have helped people with disabilities we're now seeing, oh, those things aren't actually that difficult to put into place. And I think that's a really good thing for people who have been talking about these issues for a long time. Um, so I'm hoping that some of the measures that have been put in place that make education more accessible to different people will actually stay in place once this is all over. I think another thing uh, which has been very encouraging, at least here in, in Toronto, where we're, where we're talking from, has been a rise in volunteerism throughout this and a real sense of community which has come about where people who might not have previously volunteered have really gone out of their way to offer to for example pick up groceries for their elderly neighbor neighbors who are vulnerable and can't necessarily get out so I, I think that's something which has been very nice to see and which I, I really hope continues on after this is all over. On my point I think it's how we define and redefine uh, frontline workers. I think for a long time we had taken for granted a lot of people who are working on the front lines day to day, and I mean from the doctors, nurses, uh, who we see on a regular basis, but even the folks who are serving us coffee or helping with the groceries, uh, checking us out. I think it's redefining what it is very crucial for our day-to-day -day living. I think uh, supply chains, understanding the supply chains. Um, but hopefully, I think if there is even more interest in understanding more of these tropical illnesses um, or different types of uh, pathogens that exist there in the world and how can we best tackle them ahead of time and what kind of support is needed, not only in all different jurisdictions as well, right? If there's more interest in there. But I think the support for frontline workers um, and how we come to see them uh, as a society, I think would be my takeaway. Yeah, to go off that point, I think for particularly service workers who are every day going out in public and mm -hmm. kind of helping make sure that our supply chains and our 
everyday essentials are are available. It's an eye-opening experience. And the fact that many of these employees aren't being paid adequately is a conversation that I think should have been visited before any of this happened, but 100% now Mm -hmm. should be revisited and discussed more thoroughly moving forward. And I guess on that note, we will wrap this one up.